Church, would you take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. I'll tell you about an experience I had this week. It was, um, I, I say this with no joking, um, not in snubbery or um, not in flattery at all. But I was, at a, I was at a coffee shop, and I went to get a cup of coffee as I was doing some studying Wednesday evening before church that evening, and um, went in and ordered a cup of coffee, and, and the, the man who took my order, it, it was evident um, to me that he was a biological man. Um, hair on his face, I mean, he's built like a man, very evident. Um, but he, he tried to be very feminine. He was trying to talk very feminine. He was trying to act very feminine. Uh, he was trying, in fact, to be a female. And as I w- spoke with him and had dialogue with him, uh, he would, as he tried to speak very feminine, he would slip up, I guess you would say, and speak masculine. And, and you would see him change his tone very fast to speak feminine again. It was, it was just, I, I left that conversation um, just saddened in my heart. Because this gentleman was just confused on who he was. Um, and, and you look around, and we see that all over our culture today, don't we? People confused, maybe not about their gender, but many are, but just about who they are. I mean, our public schools, our culture is spending billions of dollars to try to help young people try to find some kind of self-identity, self-worth. Um, and, and so, Christian today, l- let me ask you this kind of question and answer. Who are you? foundationally. Who are you? If you were to describe yourself, what, what kind of believer, what, what does it mean that you are a Christian? Christian was a derogatory term in the New Testament, only used a couple times. It wasn't a term of endearment. So how did the early Christians think of themselves? How do you think of yourself? What is your identity? In other words, what is the answer that we have as Christians to a culture that is confused about who they are. Uh, surely we have an answer, or we have hope in Christ, but exactly what is that? Well, um, let us read First Peter in chapter 1. Here I wanted to touch a couple verses before we flip to Hosea and finish up the book of Hosea this morning. And in First Peter chapter, 10, uh, chapter 1, verse 10, we read Peter say this. He's writing to people who are Christians who are facing persecution. Here's what he says. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating that he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Listen to this verse, verse 12. To them it was revealed, not to themselves, but to us. They were ministering the things which now have been reported to you, through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Which things, listen to this last phrase, things of which angels desire to look on. Peter said that the prophets of old, uh, Hosea, Micah, Isaiah, Daniel, all the prophets in the Old Testament, they looked forward, they were prophesying of things that they did not fully know, but they were prophesying for us. But uh, in other words, he's saying that what we know as Christians is more than they know. The prophets in the Old Testament, they wanted more clarity. They wanted a more fuller revelation because they weren't yet given it. What he's saying to the persecuted Christian, Peter's right, he's saying, you're in a better place of understanding and knowing 
the least Christian with the least knowledge today is in a better place of understanding than the great prophets of the Old Testament. And even and he paints this picture, Peter does, of, of the prophets of old looking forward to wanting to know what we know as Christians. And the angels of heaven peeking over uh, of, of heaven to see what God has done in Jesus. They don't know and they want to see. But friends, they want to know what we know. So what is it that we know exactly? What is it? It's almost as he, Peter is saying that Jesus is the end of prophecy. That he's the goal of human history. In fact, the climax of the cosmos was what God done in Jesus for his people 2,000 years ago. Friend, it's almost in to say that um, the great tyrants and world leaders of our day, Putin trying to take land that's not his and, uh, you know, uh, leaders trying to make run for the presidency in 2024, all these people trying to make schemes and do things in this world don't even compare, not even slightly, to what God has done for his people in his son. For Paul said in uh, Colossians that the world was created through Christ and for Christ and his glory. So what is it that he done 2,000 years ago? What is it that Hosea was looking for, that Hosea wanted to know? Well, let me just read one more verse here, 18 and 19, then we'll flip there. These verses are just too good to pass up while we're here. He said, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by traditions from your father, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Let's turn to Hosea, if you will, uh, this morning. Hosea, this wonderful book. Here's this prophet in Hosea. And we're going to start in chapter 2 of Hosea. And uh, knowing that the revelation that Hosea got was not yet complete, as we heard Peter speak about, um, what we're going to see here is, there is there's not necessarily problems in Hosea, but there are um, promises that are not yet fulfilled. There are question marks in Hosea that he leaves unanswered. There are I's that are not yet dotted. There are T's not yet crossed. And so let us see it in chapter 2 of Hosea, starting in verse 2. This is, uh, we read some of this last week, but I, want, I didn't give you the full context of chapter 2. The context of chapter 2 and chapter 11 is that of a court scene. Uh, here's what we have. We talked about as Israel was idolatrous, as they had started worshiping Baal and, and golden calves, and they had forsaken the Lord their God, Yahweh, completely and forgotten about him and served other gods and looked to the nations for help instead of Yahweh for help. Uh, and because of that, here's what we have in chapter 2. We have a court scene. We have the plaintiff, who is Yahweh, the offense attorney, who is Yahweh, the judge, who is Yahweh, uh, and the executioner, which is Yahweh. Uh, God is going to take all those positions in this courtroom. But the, the one on trial is Israel. And here it is, as he is the husband, Yahweh is, of the bride, Israel. He's bringing up charges against his unfaithful wife. And look in verse 2 of Hosea. You'll see first a witness called the children of uh, Israel and then evidence given. He says, bring charges. You see the word there, this courtroom. Against your mother, bring charges, for she is not my wife, I am, nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlotries from her side and her adulteries from between her breasts. Look down in verse, uh, uh, verse 6. In verse 6, what you're going to now see is three judgments that the judge Yahweh hands down 
to this unfaithful bride of Yahweh. Chapter 6 and all these judgments starts with, therefore behold. But what you're going to see as we look, the last one is surprising. The last one does not make sense. It would not have made sense to the first reader. But look at the first judgment. Therefore, in verse 6, behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in so that she cannot find her path. She will chase her lovers but not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them but not find them. Then she will say, I will go return to my first husband, for then it was better for me uh, than now. For she did not know that it was I who gave her grain. In other words, you always say, look, judge, she, she didn't know that it was I who gave her new wine and oil and multiplied her silver and her gold which they prepared for Baal. They worshiped Baal with. There's the evidence. Verse 9, here's the second judgment handed down by the judge. Therefore, I will return and take away my grain in its time, my new wine in its season. I will take back my wool and my linen given to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall deliver her from my hand. I will also cause her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, all her appointed feast, and I will destroy her vines and her fig tree. Look in verse 14. Now, 14, here's the last judgment handed down. Look at this verse. Surprising. Therefore, the judge, this is the last thing the judge will say in this court case. Behold, I will, what you expect is what she has done, what she deserves, you will destroy her, right, Yahweh? That's what you will do. I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness. I will speak comfort to her. What? I will give her vineyards from there in the valley of Accor as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up from the land of Egypt. The first reader would have said, wait a minute, judge. Do you know what happened in the valley of Accor? Do you know what happened there? When God brought his people into the promised land, the first fortified city they had to attack was Jericho. But you remember, they did no attacking. All they did was marching around. And God delivered to them the city of Jericho under one stipulation. Don't take any of the spoils of war. Don't take any of them. They're to go into the temple of the Lord. You're not to take any of them. But there was a man named Achan. And he took gold in, in, for himself and he hid it. And having found out, he was condemned along with his family and they were killed. You know where that happened at? The Valley of Achor. This is a place of shame. This is a place of guilt. How is this going to be a place of hope, Yahweh? This doesn't, this isn't making much sense. Turn to chapter 1, look at verse 10. Chapter 1, the first nine verses we led last week is God telling Hosea to name his adulterous children, to name them, I'm no longer your God. There is no hope. I will have no compassion. Those are great children's names. You who are going to have kids, you should highly not consider those names for your children. Um, but look in verse 10. All right, now you think, uh, yeah, okay, keep pouring out the wrath of God. But here's what he says in verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. This is going back to what? The Abrahamic covenant. Remember God made a covenant to Abraham? You will be the father of many nations. Many times he said, Abraham, look at the stars. Can you count them? No, God, I can't count them. Well, your offspring will be as many as the stars. They will be uncountable. 
But this was not true in their day. Even after Hosea day, uh, Hosea's day, he had prophesied that Assyria was going to come, take them captive. That's exactly what happened. But right before that happened, the, uh, in 2 Kings chapter 15, uh, verses 19 and 20, the landowners in Israel was counted and taxed. Um, scholars tell about 60,000 people uh, that own land in Israel. So maybe somewhere less than half a million people. They were counted and they were taxed. They're not innumerable yet. This doesn't make sense. But it says, it shall come to pass. Keep reading in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There it shall be said of them, you are the sons of the living God. Look at verse 11. Then the children of Judah, the children of Israel, shall be gathered together. Here's one of the T's that is uncrossed. So you remember we talked last week in the northern, you had the northern kingdom. The ten tribes, you had the southern kingdom named Judah after they had split, after um, King Rehoboam, the, the kingdom split. And here, they, God's saying they will become one people again. And it says, and appoint for themselves one head. Israel had forsaken the divinic king, the line of David. They No, they wanted their own kings. There was no hope of that. And they shall come out from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Now, you've seen Jezreel in Hosea already. Look at chapter 1. Look at verse 5. Uh, it says, and it shall come to pass. The first song was supposed to be named Jezreel. Uh, Hosea's kid. And it says, and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Verse 5. It shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Israel did put up a fight when Assyria come to take them captive. But the valley where they lost that battle was in the valley of Jezreel. That would happen after Hosea. This was a place, once again, of shame where Israel was taken captive. So, But this is going to be in, in verse 11. It says, great will be the day of Jezreel. What's he talking about? How does this make, how does this make any sense? Well, continue if you'll look at chapter 11, if you'll turn to me with another court case. In the book of Hosea. This time the script has, is somewhat similar. But this time the one who's being brought to trial is not an unfaithful spouse, but it's an unfaithful child. Israel. The metaphor is now not of husband and wife, but of parent and child. And it was uh, normal in that day when there was a child who was rebellious to be, uh, that the parents could bring him to the elders, to the city gate, and the elders in the town would decide what the child, what kind of discipline would be for this rebellious child. Some of you parents today are saying, sign me up for that class. Well, how, do I, how do I get there? Well, here's the court case that is given here. In chapter 11, verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him. Look at this next little part here of verse 1. This will be important as we move forward. And out of Egypt I called my son. What is he saying in verse 1? He's saying, Israel, God is saying to the judge, uh, my son has forgotten that he's adopted. He was, Israel did not become my child through natural birth. No, they were slaves in Egypt. I adopted them. I rescued them out of slavery, and I adopted them. And there was nothing great about them. I didn't adopt them because I thought they were cute, or I thought they were great or mighty. No, let me uh, read. Uh, you may want to mark it down. Don't turn there. Uh, I have it. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 says this, The Lord did not set his love on you, Israel, Judah, on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all people. But because the Lord loves you, because he would... 
uh, keep his oath that he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the house of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Why did God rescue Israel? Why did he bring them out of Egypt and adopt them as his children? Not because they were numerous, not because they were mighty, not because they had wisdom. No, it's because they really, they had none of that. But that's not even the case reason either. The reason was because he chose to. The reason is because he elected them. He chose them. He put his love upon them. That's why. That's what he's bringing out in verse 1. Verse 2, and as this is more evidence, as they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to the bells and burned incense to them. Like, like Gomer, as Hosea continued to love Gomer and love his wife Gomer, the further and further she went into harlotry, the more she wanted it. She said, the more I reached out to my son Israel, the more he ran from me. Parents, some of you understand that, don't you? Verse 3, I taught Ephraim to walk, another word for Israel, taking them by the arms. Do you remember when your children were young and you taught them to walk? What did you do? You, you held them by the arms, didn't you? And you, yeah, you got it. You got it. He said, I did that. I did that with Israel. I taught them to walk. He said, but they did not know that I healed them. You remember giving medicine to your young child? Not sure because they couldn't talk to you. Not sure how they react or exactly what was wrong. I mean, God's saying, I was his father. I'm the one who healed them. I knew what was wrong. I kept, he said, verse 4, I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love. He said, judge, I was to them uh, as those who take away yoke from their neck. I brought them out of slavery. I stooped and fed them. You remember what it was like feeding your children in the high chair before they could use a spoon and the mess and you were just trying to make sure they got something in their mouth they could eat no matter what it was. You just, I said, I, this is the imagery that's brought. I, was, I did everything for them, judge. But what did they do? Verse 5, he shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrians shall be his king because they refuse to repent. Here's what's going to happen. Here's the judgment to this unfaithful child. The sword shall slash in his cities, devour his districts, and consume them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on backsliding from me. Though they call me most high, none at all exalt him. They love to come and worship. They love to hear good music, but they care more about what the music sounds like than they do worshiping me. So what's going to happen? You expect God to say, here comes judgment for what you've done. But look what Mark Dever says this is the greatest chapter in the Bible. The next verses is why. Look what happens in verse 8. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you up like Zebulun? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. Those two last cities, do you remember those in the Bible? Those are the cities that were destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah. They just, Israel deserved the wrath of God almost more than those cities did because they are the people who have the covenant, have the love of God, have the law of God. God has placed his love upon them, special love upon them, yet they have spurned him. You expect him to bring, here's his wrath, but he doesn't. Look at verse 9. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man. The Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in terror. I mean, you just have to stop and say, but wait a minute. Somebody stopped me last Sunday and said, isn't that the problem? That we are bad people. And we all, hopefully, after last week, after reading the scripture, if you know yourself at all, you know that you're not a good person. And you deserve the wrath of God. Isn't that the problem? 
that God is good and we are not? And what does a good God do with bad people? For him to be good at all, he must punish bad people if he is justice and, and holy. He must. So what, how does this make sense? Surely God can pardon somebody, yes. Surely his heart can be turned, but if the Jews knew anything, if Israel had learned anything from God was this, their sins had to be punished. There had to be a Look at chapter 13 and verse 14. Look at it. Look what he says. And God continued to teach this. Here's what he says. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Oh, death. I will be your plagues, O grave. I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. Surely the Israelites, when they heard that, knew. And they would have remembered the law. And the law set up a couple different scenarios that taught them what ransom and redemption means. We throw that term around. You hear it in songs. But what does it actually mean? Well, God went through pains to describe this to Israel. What redemption means. He gave a couple scenarios in the law. He said one scenario was if a man, a farmer, has a beast, an ox, and let's say he escapes and he goes down to the the next uh, house or farm and he kills one of that man's servants there. Well, surely the farmer could be held negligent and should be killed himself. But that wouldn't do anybody good. So an option he had was to be go to the family of the servant who was killed and negotiate what they called a redemption price. The farmer whose ox had killed the servant would come to an agreement with the payment of that family of how much he would pay so that he himself would not have to die. But a redemption price could be paid to that family. Another scenario in the, in the law was if a man had to become an indentured servant. In those days, when a person went bankrupt or owed somebody money they couldn't pay, they instead of um, being put in prison or jail, one of the things they could do is enter an indentured, indentured servanthood, and they would become a servant to whoever they owed money to. And it said that if they went into this servanthood with a wife and with children, if they went into their, that opportunity, then when they came out, when they had worked their seven years or worked the money they owed, when they came out, they could take their wife and their children with them if they were married prior to going in. But they said, the law says, but let's say someone entered into uh, this indentured servanthood, but got married, married another servant of his master or married the master's daughter, say. He, when he got out of paying his seven years or paying the price he owed, he could not take his wife and children with him. He would have to wait until he had established himself and could get enough money to pay the bridal price. It was also called the redemption price. So they knew a price had to be paid for their sin. If any, the Bible, God had taught them anything up to this point. Their lawlessness, their iniquities, a price had to be paid. Turn to chapter 3 with me. Chapter 3, the shortest chapter in Hosea. James Montgomery Boyce said, this is the greatest chapter in all the Bible. If you'll read it with me, we see more about this redemption price. And the Lord said to me, go again. Love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery. Just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who took other gods and loved the raising cakes of the pagans. The raisin cakes were the cakes that they would use in a bell worship. Verse 2, so I bought her 
for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and one half homers of barley. And I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too I will be toward you. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord in his goodness in the later days. I want you to imagine this scene for a minute. God tells Hosea, if you remember from last week, the narrative, Gomer, his wife, they've had three children, or say she's had three children. One of them is Hosea's. Two of them are not. She has played the harlot. She loves uh, being a harlot. Many times or he sent the children to try to bring her back to be a mom. She said, no, I want to be a harlot. This is what I want to do. I enjoy this way of life. This is what I want. But now we find out, apparently, because Hosea has to go buy her, that she is no longer a harlot. Apparently her pimp or whoever was uh, in charge of her had her marketability, I guess you would say, had kind of run out. And the only way for him to make money at this point was to sell her as a slave. And so imagine when God told Hosea he would have to go and buy her. Here's a man of God. Here's a man of truth, a man of integrity. And he's going to have to go down to the shady side of town. And not only go down to that part of town, but he's going to have to go to that part of town and ask where his wife is. Imagine that. Hey, have you, sir, have you seen my wife, Gomer? Oh, man, I didn't. I didn't know that was your wife. I, that, no, it don't matter. I just need to know where she is. Well, when I, when I saw her, she was a couple streets down. Okay, thank you. He goes and continues to see. Hey, have you seen my wife, Gomer? Uh, actually, we heard she's being sold today at the slave block. Okay, thank you. So now he goes a little bit deeper into the wrong part of town. There where they're selling slaves. One thing we know about slavery in this time is slaves were sold naked. So imagine the scene. Here's a woman who has been used and abused, and she is there by her own making. She is there because it's a lifestyle that she wanted. It's the lifestyle she desired, and there she is. But this thing for certain, in her shame and in her filth that she was on that slave block, she would have definitely had her eyes closed. She definitely would not want to see what was taking place in front of her. The only way to escape what was taking place and her shame in front of her would have been to close her eyes. And imagine being Gomer for a minute as people start to bid prices on her. Uh, five uh, silver coins, ten. And then all of a sudden, she hears a voice that she would have never expected to hear in that place. That of her husband. She must have thought, what's he doing here? Why is he here? But as sudden as the bidding goes, he wins the bid. And he comes up to her with a robe and he wraps it around her and says, you're coming home with me. You are my wife. And all that you've done, I understand it. But you're going to come home and you're going to be my wife, the mother to my children, for you are mine, Gomer, and I love you. What a picture of Christ, isn't it? We know that we are Gomer, don't we? What a picture of Jesus. But what did Peter say? We, we are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, are we? But with the precious blood of the Lamb. Well, see, when Jesus, he came down to the slave block, he came down to this world of woe. 
And he didn't come and pay silver coins to buy us off the slave block. No, he brought us off the slave block, so, and he took our place on the slave block. And he was the one that was stripped and abused and beaten for our sake. He paid the penalty that we deserved. And you see this, but, you know, so here the redemption is set. Here we have a picture of Christ and that Christian we rejoice over, but it still leaves some other issues unsolved. You remember chapter 11, verse 7, what did it say? My people always are backslidden because here was the covenant that God had with Israel. If you keep my covenant, if you worship me, you keep these commandments. But what did they do? They went astray. If you examine your own heart today, Christian, don't you see that in you prone to wonder? Lord, I feel it. Don't you feel that in your own heart? Things taking your eyes, other things taking your emotions and your desires other than Christ, other than the redemption, other than that. What are you going to do when you fail? Christian, what's your hope when you fail? Not if, but when you fail. Are we not just as bad as Israel? Are we not going to break the covenant of ourselves? What hope is there for us? Will we not be the same position as Israel was and God saying, I'm going to punish you as well because of your sin? What hope do we have? Yeah, he's redeemed us, but surely we're going to mess this thing up, aren't we? Well, look at chapter 1. Look at verse 16. He gives us a hint at what's going to take place in this new covenant. Here's what it says in verse 16. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will be called my husband. No longer shall you be called my master. For I will take from her mouth the names of the bells, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. In that day I will make a covenant for them. A covenant? With the beast of the field, the birds of the air, and the creeping things of the ground. Bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth and make them lie down safely. This is a promise that the land will be made right. That, remember in chapter 1, they'll return to the land? That's what verse 18, verse 19. Here, look, at, look what word is used multiple times in 19 and 20. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me and righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Betroth, marriage, seen in verse 18, a covenant, verse 16, a husband. All these are pictures of marriage. But, you know, maybe you read this narrative and you, and you just kind of think to yourself, you know, Hosea's kind of pathetic in a way. He keeps chasing this woman who doesn't seem to want him much. Almost like a, I don't know how to say it. You know, the nerd in high school kept chasing the cheerleader and the cheerleader didn't want him, you know, but they kind of, she, she messed around with him for just a, you know, a, a couple of weeks, but then she left him and then the nerd's like, I don't know, kind of like me and my wife, you know, <laughs> like, you know, I told, I told Renee, it's like, if you, if you threaten to leave me, I'm going with you because I don't know what to do without you, you know, that kind of, I mean, he just didn't know how to live without it. It's almost kind of pathetic, isn't it? The way Hosea is kind of chasing after this woman who didn't want him in it. But you see, that's, that's really not the picture given at all, is it? Because did you see at the end of chapter 3, verse 5, what did he promise? He promised that one day the people would return and seek after David, their king, in verse 5. Chapter 1, look at, look at it again, chapter 1, verse 11. Here's the promise. The children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. So here's the issues. There's a people... 
Okay, even when they returned back from Assyria and Babylonian exile, the people never got back together. They never became, Israel and Judah never came back together. You remember when Jesus in John 4, he talked to the woman at Samaria? That was an odd deal, wasn't it? The uh, disciples saying, are you talking to a Samaritan woman? Uh Uh-uh, I don't know if you know this, but Jewish men don't talk to Samaritans, especially Samaritan women. What are you doing, Jesus? While the Samaritans there was Israel, that was in the land of Israel, but they were seen as a half-breed people. They were never united again. The king, they came back from exile, but there was never a king. There was no king of David back to the line. Why, when Jesus comes on the scene, who's, who's ruling Israel in, in Jerusalem? The Romans are. There's no Jewish king ruling. But not only that, he says that um, there will be one head, there you have, and they shall come out of the land. All these promises in Hosea of a king, of one people, and of a land. Hosea, even after the exile, none of that is given. So how is this true? How is this? How has God made good on this new covenant, this marriage? Turn with me to Matthew. Let's go to the New Testament. Turn with me to Matthew. If you'll flip in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1 in the New Testament. Let us see, Christian, what we have in Christ. Let us behold it this morning. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The first verse in the New Testament, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Who is the king that has come? The son of Abraham. Verse 20 in chapter 1. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. If Joseph was the son of David, then surely his son, his earthly son, Jesus was as well, wasn't he? Look. There's the king. So the king is Christ. Look at chapter 2. Look at verse 15. There's two places in the New Testament that Hosea is quoted. Two places. We're going to look at both of them. Here in Hosea chapter 2 and verse 15. When he arose, uh, starting verse 13. This is speaking of Jesus as a child. You remember Herod had the children killed in Jerusalem. Remember the Christmas story, verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, Mary, of course, flee to Egypt. Stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. Verse 15 is Hosea 11, verse 1. Remember we read it. And was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I shall be called my son. What happens? What what is it about this king? This king apparently is Jesus. But what what does this king do? What happens next in the life of Jesus? He comes out of Egypt. He is baptized. He, as the children of Israel, cross the Red Sea. And uh, so Jesus goes through the water. And the Father affirms him. The Holy Spirit descends upon him. And then he goes where? Into the wilderness. Where did the children of Israel go? After they come through the waters. They went in the wilderness. And Jesus goes through the wilderness. And they were tempted, but they failed, didn't they? Over and over again they failed. But Jesus, for 40 days and 40 nights, he goes without food. And then he is tempted by Satan. But he never fails. No, not once. This king is perfect. This king, this king is what Israel failed to be. This is the true, not only is he the king, he's the true Israel. So there's the king. What about the people? Turn to Romans chapter 9. Turn to Romans chapter 9 with me. So we have the issue that Hosea was looking 
For who is this king of David? Who is this one leader in the New Testament? Resounding says it's Jesus, son of David, King Jesus. In Romans chapter 9, we also have Hosea is quoted. We'll start in verse 6 of Romans chapter 9. And what we see is uh, this people that never came together. Let's see the people that God does bring together. Paul sees its fulfillment, as we'll see here. In verse 6 of Romans 9, But it is not that the word of God is taken to no effect, for they are not all Israel who are Israel. The point of Paul in Romans chapter 9 is this. Everyone born a Jew is not a true child of God. They're not a true Israelite. Verse 7, Nor are they all children because they are seed of Abraham. But in Isaac you shall be called. That is those who are, are children of the flesh. These are not the children of God. That's very clear, isn't it? But children of the promise are counted as the seed. Well, who's that? Who's children of the promise? For this is the word of promise. At this time it will come and Sarah shall have a son. So who's the, who's the, who's the child of promise? Verse 10, we have another example. Not only this, but when Rebekah had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that, but that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It is said of her, the older shall serve the younger, as is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. What's the example point to? Who are these people? These people are not uh, that Hosea was looking toward. He was looking for one people, God's one people. Paul is saying that those one people, Hosea was trying to figure out who they were. It is not people born of Israel descent, of the flesh, but it is people chosen by God. That's the point. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whoever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion, whoever I have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. It's based on the freedom of God. It's based on the choice and election of God. Look at verse 23. We're getting, here's where Hosea is quoted. And then he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As it says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. And her beloved, who is not my beloved, it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, and they shall be called sons of the living God. What's he, what's he saying? He, Hosea was looking for one people. It was not ethnic Israel. It was, in fact, a people that God had chosen and elected. It was, and Gentiles, people who are not Israelites, would be part of that. What does that mean? Spell it out, Paul. We'll look in verse 30. He goes into more detail. He tells us exactly what he's thinking, and he sums it up. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness? even the righteousness of faith? But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, the work of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. Chapter 10, verse 2, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, speaking of Israelites, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Here it is in verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Hey. Who is it that God has chosen? It's those who believe. Hey. 
Friends, the people that Hosea was looking to, this united people that uh, Hosea was looking for, trying to figure out who it was, it's the church. It's those who believe. It's those who have put their faith, those who have repented of their sins and put their faith in Christ, in the one who has redeemed us, not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of the Lamb. Uh, to sum it all up, Paul goes, goes to Ephesians 1. You've got to go there with me. Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, everything that Hosea, it's like Paul read the book of Hosea and said, Hosea, I got you, my friend. Hosea, what you were looking for, let me answer it in one sentence. And he does in Ephesians chapter 1, and uh, it's just one sentence in our translation. In verse 3, here's what he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before him in love. A phrase you're going to see almost eight times in this passage is in him. In him, having predestined us to the adoption as sons. Remember Hosea 11? They were rebellious children, even though they were adopted. What is he saying? In Christ, we are adopted children. That, that's us. He was talking about Hosea. By Jesus Christ to himself. How, did, how could God look on his wayward children and say, I want you, your mind, my heart is stirred, because we are in Christ. What does that mean? Look, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Beloved, what is that? That's a word picture of what? A bride. We are the bride of Christ. In him we have redemption. Here's the word redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sin according to the riches of his grace which he made abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself. Paul uses this term in him. He writes 13 letters in the New Testament. He uses this term in him. He uses it 70 plus times. 70 times. What's the point? We've got a people. We've got a king. But what about the bride, though? We're still, we're still opt to mess this up, aren't we, Christians? I mean, what's the solution? Well, the, the solution is that we're married to this perfect king. Please go home and read Ephesians 5. Please do it, the end of it, especially the last 10 verses. Because you know this if you're married. What, what is marriage about? It's about being one, isn't it? God told Adam and Eve, the two shall become one flesh. Two shall become one. Christian, here's the good news of the gospel. Not only is that he's redeemed us with his blood, that's, that's part of it, but that's not all of it. The other is this, that we are his bride. And everything that is his is ours, you see. You see, the obedience of Christ is our obedience. The love the Father has for the Son is ours. Why? Because we are His bride. You see, His perfection, His baptism is ours. His testing in the wilderness is ours. Him, him being the King, He's our King. He is ours. You see, not only did He redeem us, but He made us pure. Don't you like that hymn, Rock of Ages? Cleft for me, let me hide myself in Thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side that come be of sin, the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. See, we are his. I wish we had time, church, to go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul cites one of an early hymn that the church sung. And here's what the end of that hymn said. Though we are faithless, 
He is faithful because he cannot deny himself. He cannot deny himself. He cannot deny us because we are his, because we are married to him. He cannot, in Ephesians 5, Paul says, you must love your wife, husbands, because they are you. You are one. Who has ever not loved themselves? Jesus says, I must love you, and I will be faithful to you because you are my bride. And everything that's mine is yours. Can I tell you something that sounds heretical, but I promise you it's true. Now, because Jesus has purchased us, because we've become his bride, church, Jesus is incomplete without us. Now, I know that sounds shocking. And I know that sounds beyond and bizarre and heretical, but I promise you it's not. I know it is surprising and mind-blowing. Because we are His, He is incomplete without us. I hope you wonder at that. Hey, if you're not a Christian, are you tired of being let down? You know, people will let you down. Earthly husbands, earthly wives earthly friends, children, they'll all let you down, every single one of them. You want something solid? You want something you can base your life on, your eternity on? Base it on Christ. He'll never let you down. I, I wish I had some more time. Jezreel, you remember he said, name your kid Jezreel, and he said uh, how terrible Jezreel is a place. It was like Pearl Harbor. It was like Gettysburg. It was a place of demise and place of shame for Israel. You know what the town going into the valley of Jezreel was called? Megetto. Megetto. That valley is also called the Valley of Armageddon. One day, Revelation 19 tells us, one day the kings of this world will gather against the prince of heaven, and he will defeat them. Where? The Valley of Armageddon. And there and forever, after the marriage supper of the Lamb, this earth will be made new. He says, I go to prepare a place for you, my bride, so that where I will, there you will be also. Bible says the meek shall inherit the earth. The earth is Jesus's. He's a king. It's his. But you know what's great about that? We're married to him. He's our groom. So it's ours. Christian, that's what you have in Christ. Christian, are you living up to that kind of bride? Is that what, when you think of who you are, do you think of yourself as the bride of Christ? Church, that's who you are. That's what you have. Everything that's his is yours. Don't you want something like that? If last week was the wrath of God that should lead us to repentance, I think the other part of Hosea is this. As Paul says in Romans 2, 4, it's the goodness of God also that leads us to repentance. Would you stand with me and pray this morning? Hosea in chapter 14 said, Return to me. Return to me with words. One of the themes of Hosea is to return to the Lord. It's an offer to repent and have faith. The sign of the new covenant in the New Testament of having such faith, of having repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ is baptism. Let me ask you this morning, if you're in this room or you're listening, have you trusted Christ? Maybe for the first time this morning, as you heard this sermon, or do you want to trust Christ? Do you want to repent of your sin and trust him? Or have you already done that? Have you done that and not been baptized? The Bible says the confession of your faith, the sign that you have faith in Christ. You're not saved by baptism. You're not saved by the sign. It's just a sign. You're saved by repenting of your sin and putting your faith in Christ. The Bible says if you've done that, though, you need to be baptized. Hey, this morning, you want to be baptized? You want to publicly identify with the world that he's your groom and you're his bride? Why don't you come and submit for baptism?
Do you want to be identified with his public bride, with his church? you want to join the church? We're going to open an uh, altar here just when I pray. If you'd like to come. Or Christian, you've not been living up to the standard of the bride of Christ. Not realize who you are in Christ. Maybe you'd come and repent and turn to him. Let me pray. Father, Lord, would you work during this time of invitation? Father, would you draw the only way you can? Thank you for what we have in Christ. Thank you for your word. In Christ's name, amen.